She had this one line that really struck me where it was, all our existential questions are now engineering problems. <laughs> well, I don't know that I agree with that, but look, I, but I think, one of the things it's like the soul, like when, yeah, when we, I mean, it's like, very arbitrary, we've been trying to figure this out since really when we started thinking. Right. I think that the human components of an organic soul, mind, brain, body is something that will not be capable by AI. However, Welcome to The Rebooting Show. This is Brian Morrissey. Each week, I speak to those in the media ecosystem who are either building sustainable media businesses themselves or play an important part in their construction. This episode is what I call a spotlight episode that I do with select partners of The Rebooting. I've been fortunate to work with several great companies and Curve is one of them. If you don't know Curve, they have a very innovative technology that, yes, uses AI in order to identify objects within video. This allows Curve to do all kinds of things, including make shoppable video a reality. In this episode, Curve CEO Gary Mittman and I discuss realizing the promise of shoppable video, along with the need for media to move beyond the tried and true monetization methods of subscriptions and traditional ad formats. We also dip into the role AI will play in advertising, including how it will soon be able to quote unquote fix ads that aren't drawing enough of what Gary calls active attention. And that is a perfect segue to tell you a little bit about the event the rebooting is doing at Cannes in partnership with Curve. For three days, we'll explore the new attention economy from June 19th to June 21st. We have nine hours of programming lined up and over 30 speakers joining us. I'm recording several podcast episodes during the event. I hope I will not lose my voice and they'll be published in this feed daily that week. A few select highlights of the agenda. I'm speaking with her CRO, Lisa Howard, about the modern media playbook, as many so-called legacy media companies have emerged in far better shape than the digital upstarts that were supposed to replace them. Bloomberg CRO Christine Cook will join me to discuss reasons for optimism amid the doom and gloom. And Group Black's Bonin Bao, someone who I've known many, many, many years, will discuss how media needs to adapt to reach younger audiences. And I promise I will push Bonin on when Group Black will actually buy one of the companies it is always reported to be looking at. I'll put a link to register in the show notes or just visit therebooting.com and you'll find a link at the top of all of my recent newsletters, which I hope you're already reading. Please do if you're not. Also, send me your feedback on the show, good and bad, ideally helpful. My email is brian at therebooting.com and leave the show a rating and review. I always appreciate those, particularly the good ones I have to say. And supposedly they help people find podcasts. So here's my conversation with Gary. Gary, thanks so much for joining me today. Where are you? Are you uh, in I'm, LA? Well, as you know, our corporate's in Austin, Texas, but I'm yeah. based in Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm really looking forward to hanging out in Cannes. You know, we're doing three days of programming together at the Curve Cafe, which is on the Quasette. Well, it's off the Quasette. I guess it's not technically the Quasette, but it's like across, I think, from the Palais. I know that area for my many years in Cannes. I never would have thought, you know, honestly, like growing up in like suburban Philadelphia that I would like go to the south of France as much as I have. And be knowledgeable of the town. <laughs> yeah, I could like give people like, don't go there, go here. So anyway, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. We've got 
an amazing group of speakers that are coming, and everyone should obviously join us there. I mean, I'm biased and says Gary. But yeah, no, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot of fun. And really, the speakers you put together are great. I'm very much looking forward to the conversations. Cool. Yeah, I'm really happy with it. And I'm going to be doing a daily newsletter from there with help from Mike Shields, because I'm only one person, and, and a daily podcast and a few other things. So it's going to be... It's going to be a busy week, but I'm going to be in the south of France. So what am I? Nobody's going to be crying for me. Whenever I'm like, I'm going to be so busy that week. They're like, whatever, (laughs) which I get. So I want to talk about, because one of the things that I think is going to be a major, I mean, we're going to be talking about it at the new attention economy event at the Curve Cafe, which everyone should come to, is AI is going to be a major issue. And, you know, you guys use AI like with your tech. I want to just like first start off with, for those who are unfamiliar with Curve, because I think Curve's like really interesting company and technology, because I'll be honest with you, like I've said it in the ads for this, like I was hearing about like making shoppable video like 15 years ago when I was at Adweek and it like never worked, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like the thing is like, you know, ideas are, are one thing and some, you know, technology catches up. So just give a quick background on, on what Curve does sure, for those sure. who are unfamiliar. So to, to your point, people have been looking at Shoppable since the infamous Jennifer Aniston sweater and chasing the blue dot around the screen. Oh my God, I remember that the hot see it was hot spotting. Yeah, right? it was just, it, it's been a, it, there's a long road of dead bodies to get here, yeah. let me tell you. But what makes Curve unique, what we do is we have a we have patents around pixel edge recognition on video with AI. So that means that we don't use bounding boxes. We have a proprietary polygon solution that allows us to identify objects uniquely. And within clusters and overlaps, we can identify. So in difficult positions or situations, we can be far more accurate than any other technology out there. So we leverage that to make both ads and shows shoppable and or content. We started with the lowest hanging fruit of ads, which made sense, meaning someone was running an ad in a digital environment and weren't giving the advertiser an opportunity or the consumer an opportunity to purchase. We consider that a lost opportunity. So if you're digital and you're running campaigns and you're not making it capable of being shoppable, it's a mistake. So we started there. And as you say, the shoppable capabilities have been a long road. Many of these other solutions were embeds and were not programmatically distributed. So we created wraps that allowed us to be programmatically distributed so that we can control this environment at any destination on any... So wait, let me just jump in there. What does that mean, programmatically distributed? So... uh, I got to ask the obvious question. No, go ahead. Yeah, no problem. So running an ad through a VAS tag or a VPAID tag or whatever type of distribution you're doing, what we did was we created a solution that works within that. So we made it compatible with every player that could be a destination. So you're buying programmatically through multiple de- networks and it lands on a publisher's website. It hits their player. The Our intelligence within the wrap calls out for the overlay in real time. So it matches it up in real time at the player. And that was not an easy feat to do. Let me tell you, it took quite a while to build that out, figure it out, make it agnostic to all players and distribution channels. But that was the starting point of allowing advertisers to leverage shoppable ads within their distribution platforms. Okay. 
Cool. So yeah, I mean that was something again. Like I, it's funny you bring up the Jennifer Aniston sweater because I yeah. like I had, people can't see this because it's a podcast, but I had this look of recognition because it was bringing back memories from that time. Yeah. Um, but then, then, you know, it, it, then it leaps into the TV world to that point. If you don't mind, I'll go there. Sure. So then it gets into the world of OTT, CTV, etc. And in those environments today, we're using a QR code as the second device. So on OTT, someone's watching a show, they pause a scene, little tiles pop up on the bottom, they can scroll left or right, select the thing of choice, and those tiles represent the objects in that scene. So if they open up the larger tile, it gives a description, price, other information. Using a QR code, they can then go to their second device and purchase with either one click or however that retailer wants to play with us. But additionally, it's going now to registration data. So these platforms who have credit card information now can integrate with the retailers. So the capability of having a one-click transaction off of television with your remote is where we're heading. And it's getting really exciting that it's getting to that place. Yeah. And it's something like, you know, for media owners, they just have to do. Like, I mean, I think Terry Quadra says, like, you know, performance media is sort of eating the world yeah. because they're a major advertising player next to Amazon. And then retail media is going to be a massive thing. And to be able to compete, and in many ways it's true, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you have to, when I think one of the big things we'll see in Can, I mean, first of all, it's like, we're going to go to Can and we're going to have like Apple having like a massive display in Can, which is kind of bizarre if you really think about it. You know, media owners have to really tie to transactions at the end of the day. It's the ROI is the ROI, no matter how you look at it. Yeah. You know, I mean, is it lifting sales at the retail outlet or, you know, at the brick and mortar or is it driving conversions digitally or remotely? But it's still, they have to look at it as an ROI. So explain that because I feel like, yeah, you know, for me, one of the big themes, and I'm interested to see, because I think can, it gets a lot of grief and stuff like this for the excess and whatnot, but it is a really good temperature check for what is going on in the media industry because all sides do come together for that week. And I think one of the things that I'm very focused on is that we're sort of between eras in a lot of parts of the media industry. And the media industry has many different parts, right? And one of them is in the streaming industry, right? We went through this period where there was clearly a land rush, and we've seen this before. Everyone, you know, pours in. It's all about growth coming out of a zero interest rate era, and that that certainly fueled a lot of it. But I think what's very clear is that era is giving way to a new era. Now, whether it's an austerity era or just like a profitability era, how do you see streaming industry? at that inflection point. So it's interesting. When we started this company seven years ago now, we knew that subscription fatigue would hit in. We knew it. You know, we were looking at it. And if you look at it logically, it's the same evolution as pay websites and how it all started, right? Where people were paying for access to the Wall Street Journal and then not. And then, you know, all the newspapers asking and then not because it wasn't working, right? People are not going to pay for a hundred different channels at five, ten dollars a month. It's just not going to happen, right? So we knew that was going to come. So we were looking at it as what's the solution? 
And now everybody's looking at the interstitial ads, a 1950s model being the solution, which doesn't make no sense because Netflix has trained the consumer to watch without ads, right? So this has become the standard in streaming. So how does streaming people live in making money beyond subscription with these consumers looking to watch with no ads? That's their dilemma. And we think that the solution is in-show monetization and user-curated experiences, meaning that John Doe is watching the show or Jane Doe is watching the show and they see an object, a couch, a sweater, whatever, they pause the show, they see that object, they can interact with it and purchase it, and that's an ad opportunity. And that's a user-curated ad opportunity. So I think a hybrid of what the world sees today is where we're heading. So a yeah. hybrid of potentially sponsored ads, meaning opening, closing, potentially in the middle, but not your traditional interstitial. I think that's annoying to consumers, and I think people are not looking for that experience. Yeah, but just to push back, like, I mean, I can remember back and like, so we're going back to the Jennifer Aniston yeah. sweater. We'll just like stay there for a little bit because at the time, you know, we talk about can there was this notion that the 30 second spot was going away. And like I kept because I was covering the digital stuff, these like, you know, digital agencies like RGA and whatnot. And they were all saying, oh, the 30 second spots like done and it's all going to be. By the way, these websites that we happen to build, just c convenient. But it's endured, right? And it, and one of the things is consumer expectations. Like, And I think what's interesting with your example of Netflix is whether that really has broken the consumer expectations because you know we're both of an age where we were, we're used to it. We're used to a lot of things, right? <laughs> Whereas younger people just simply aren't. Like, I mean, you know, we just would go to the kitchen and get a snack during the ad breaks and Chuck Woolery would say, we'll be back two and two, right. which I never understood, but it was two minutes and two seconds. And I finally found out. So, <laughs> or four minutes, right? And these days it's like, yeah, why don't we just make it four minutes? Explain to that, like consumer expectations, part of it, but then also normalizing this behavior of shopping within video. That's not something that people have been used to, to doing. And I think we're seeing a bunch of different you know, expectations changing on consumers, but it's also just like habits changing. Sure. So, so let's first look at like DVR. So yeah. people that have traditional cable or satellite are DVRing everything, right? And they're fast forwarding through the ads. So that is already a demonstration of the consumer behavior, how they don't want to have the ads, right? They're not looking to them. It's a force fed thing. So I think major films, especially when you're looking at the feature films that are streaming across these platforms and you have major feature films that people go to theaters to watch. They're sitting at home with their you know, $50,000 sound systems and watching this and getting ads that they're not happy with that. So I, I think that's an example of the consumer wanting it to be ad free. But how does it work for in show is your question. And will people actually mm -hmm. buy? Right. So the testing we've been doing in Australia and some of it with major networks domestically has clearly proven that consumers will buy They will engage. They need to understand how to do it. So the user adoption is really the hurdle here, yeah. getting the consumer to understand the behavior and what it is. But I think it's a pretty natural thing. I mean, the consumers now with social media have gotten very accustomed to the in-content click and action. So that's a behavior that the 
mostly younger generation who are growing quickly have become accustomed to. So I think we're simply adopting a behavior they're comfortable with in a new environment that needs innovation. Yeah. And it's also, I think there is, there has been a normalization because again, with sort of going back in time a little bit is, you know, con content and commerce was something I was hearing about like in, in 1999. Yeah, sure. Like, even, sure. Like, forget about Jennifer Addison's sweater. But now it's a reality and people are, I think, you know, people are used to that blending of entertainment and, and shopping to some degree. I mean, one of the things that I'm, I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but like, I, I'm sort of like surprised that like live shopping has not really taken off in like U.S. and European markets comparatively to China in particular. I don't know why that is exactly. I don't know I, I if that's one have of these cultural things. Yeah, I have an interesting point on that because we have a very large investor based in Hong Kong. And yeah. uh, we spoke to her about that, about what's her opinion of why live shopping is doing so well in Asia and not in these other regions. And the point she made was that she doesn't believe that people are following the brand. They're following the talent. So when they have somebody like a, an influencer, let's say, selling shoes on a podcast or on a live streaming and in wherever, hi, I'm going to be at X store yeah. streaming live, check out the shoes I'm going to be doing. That attracts the viewers, right? So the viewers are going to come. Then that same person says, oh, I'm going to be at the market streaming this income, check it out, those viewers follow. If it's a sales rep saying, I'm going to be at the store doing a live shopping experience, are they going to go? Yeah. That's not really inviting. So I think what we're seeing is the evolution of people perceiving the term live stream shopping is the new thing, but consumers being normal behavior, reacting to what's attracting them. Right. If a live stream says 50 percent off Louis Vuitton, well, yeah, people are going to watch and go there and buy. So there has to be a hook. There has to be something to drag the people there. I think that's yeah. what's missing with the most of these people's perceptions of live shopping. Yeah. So explain then how does like a, a institutional brand, because one of the things that I really track is this shift from like institutional brands to individual brands. And like, I hope with the rebooting to sort of, you know, I don't want it to all be about me, like particularly long term. I really don't. But like, you know, the individual part, the personal part, the reputational part obviously gives it, you know, you know, some leverage in the marketplace that I think that, you know, regular institutional brands don't necessarily, if particularly if you're building it from scratch, don't have. And I wonder about how like you see legacy brands, you know, dealing with that in that like, like what you're saying is that it's really personality driven, like with the live shopping. Yeah. And I'm wondering about how you see like partners trying to have that divide where if it totally works with an individual, how does like, you know, brand like on NBCU or something, how do they end up, you know, realizing the potential of this? Well, I don't know that I have all the answers to that, but... Well, it's I, a podcast. You can just say <laughs> you do. What do you think I do, Gary? Yeah, and you do it well. No, I think that the, the error in the live shopping stream strategies is the lack of perceiving it as an event, right? So it has to be looked at as something that draws attention. It has to be an event. It has to be a marketing strategy. They have to come up with why would I, as a consumer, go to watch this event and buy something. There has to be a hook, right? So if it's, like I said, if it's 50% off deal on 
highly in, in recognized brands, that's a big attraction. If it's some unique release, like Nike doing a dunk drop, right? Uh, you know, like the, that's yeah. a big deal. I mean, these kids go on there at 7 a.m. to buy these shoes because they know there's a limited drop happening. Right. Oh, I so know. that's a hook. Right. So and my kids do it, you know. think that it's really looking at these as events as opposed to just making a live streaming strategy. Yeah. My last job, we had an office on Mercer Street in New York, mm-hmm. and it was sort of next to V-Files, the Nike store, and one other place that, I don't know, Parade, or what's the, I forget the name of the streetwear brand, but our street would be madness every drop. Yeah. And I remember... I, rem- I remember this is many years ago. I remember when Ky- Kylie Jenner dropped her lip kit and there were like, you would have thought that the president was like visiting the neighborhood with the amount of security that was needed. And I was like, whoa, something here is going on. And this is many years ago. And it really does speak to the power of individuals. But one example of what you were saying, like explain a little bit what you're doing with the must shop TV in partnership with sure. NBCU. Sure. So uh, the people at NBC are are really smart. And there's a a couple of champions there that we're working with that are leading the charge and really get it. And what they've done is they've created their own catalogs of products. And Curve is the engine behind the correlation and matching. So our artificial intelligence is identifying the objects, correlating and matching against product catalogs, bringing them together and pushing out the shoppable component. But because NBC owns the catalog, it makes it fairly easy because it's the one catalog. We're working with other companies where it's multiple catalogs, where we have to query against millions and millions of SKUs in near real time to match it up. But that experience is one that we're very excited about because they really get it and they're pushing it out in a really smart way in the Must Shop TV. Obviously, they have the power of being NBC so and Peacock. So it's exciting to roll out with them. Yeah. So what what kind of challenges do you see to this becoming sort of normalized and habitualized like as, you know, both behavior, but also getting the economics right? Because a lot of these things like I have a lot of meetings with people. And one of the meetings I had like this week was with someone who is at like a broadcast network. Um, And this person was going through all these different opportunities. And yeah, newsletters are interesting. We've got personalities. Maybe we build like a little franchise around them. Yeah, like, you know, the events are kind of interesting. Like, but he's like, this doesn't replace what is eroding at a very fast pace. I want this to be totally optimistic, but I'm also a realist, right? <laughs> and how do you make sure? Because I remember over the years, right? I would always hear from people who are promising incremental, right? And I was like, oh, that means small. And like, the incremental never makes up for what is being eroded. Yeah, well, it's a new world. And you said it earlier, we're in a hybrid space and we're all going to learn together. I mean, I don't think that there's any single answer. I don't think anybody right now at this time. Let me give you some examples of some of the hurdles, right? If you look at legacy content, right? Legacy content has talent agreements that could be a problem for creating shoppable content. Some of the people we've spoke to are some of the content owners are asking us to create negative 
recognition. So we do facial recognition, identify that talent, and that we cannot create shoppable things off of them. Wait, why can't you? Because just the agreements? Yeah, the, the terms the and conditions of the original talent oh, contracts. Oh, Right. So, so like... like Hollywood loves lawyers. Oh, my you God, do they? <laughs> no offense to the lawyers. Oh, you didn't go to law school, did you? Gary? No, I did not. I did not. I am not <laughs> a lawyer. God. No, I take no relation to that whatsoever. So, although well, I leverage, LA, all I your leverage great must... lawyers, I have to say. Um, no, well, lawyers are always great to talk to because they're billing $600 an hour. Yeah, or, or more. So be on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that the moment in time that we're at is experiencing a lot of change. And you look at like reality TV and the 360 contracts there make it easy to do shoppable. That's simple, right? But if you take a look at legacy content, if you look at the new talent agreements. And I mean, there's a lot of variables. And remember that that the engagement, the interactivity doesn't have to be shoppable either. It could be relevant ad driven. It could be, I mean, there's a lot of components there. There's informational. There's, I mean, Amazon X-Ray and IMDb, you know, I mean, that's an example of somebody that's purely just informational. I'm but, sorry, what is the, I don't know that Amazon, Amazon X-Ray. X-Ray. So Amazon Prime has if you pause a show, they can pull up information on the talent in the show. And so you pause, you see who the actor is, you can go to their IMDb profile, and that's the way they have you interacting with the content. And the users are engaging, people are doing that. So uh, it's interesting to look at the evolution of where this is going content-wise into both shoppable and information. So commerce and content. Right. So let's talk a little bit about AI where we like started because, you know, like these changes are coming like fast and furious. Maybe it's, I'm getting older, but they seem very fast to me at least. And, you know, I think they're causing a lot of, I don't know, anxiety, I would say in, in, in a lot of quarters. I mean, I, as a person who types a lot of words, you know, I was like, I was much more into the technological changes that were focused on like, you know, automating more blue collar work and stuff like this. So I was saying, oh, let's just, you know, this is how it goes. We'll have to retrain people. When the robots started, you know, making content, I was getting a little, I was like, well, let's put a pause here. Like, how do you see just overall, obviously AI is baked into what Curve does and AI is going to be baked into pretty much everything. It seems like that is operating in the digital world, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, look at the new releases from Google and everybody else on generative AI opportunity for optimization and ad placement. That's now the hot ticket, right? That's what they're releasing. So on contextual, on banners, on, on all the different opportunities, rather than using your traditional algorithmic optimizations, they're now suggesting that people start using this new generative AI that they've released. So the AI can ideally not look at the history of analyzing, but know where to place it in advance is what they're suggesting. I haven't tested it. I don't know how it works, but I do know that's new release that everybody's doing. So what is generative AI? I don't think people have a grasp on that. Artificial intelligence is about training models and computers being able to leverage those, right? So you get to generative AI, that becomes creative. AI. So it isn't analyzing and doing something post, it's doing something requested in advance. So as an example, all the different image generative AI platforms where you can say, make me a picture of a unicorn on the beach, right? And it does that, right? It has to have the training models to be able to know what to create, right? When you ask Mm -hmm. it, if you ask it something it doesn't have in the training models, it's not going to be able to do it. 
right? So it, it's really, it's a hybrid of human training models into what becomes generative AI. Now, as the AI starts learning to create its own models and evolving it, that's where it starts getting to the massive explosion, like the chat GPT and all the things that are going on out there, text-related, and now moving into visuals. I mean, one of the things that we're constantly looking at is the dynamic creation of visual content, right? So if you look at like Photoshop, just released mm -hmm. Adobe Photoshop, just released a brand new release, that's amazing. It allows you to push, if there's an image that has things in it, you just push it out and it opens up duplicating those pixels and creating an image expanded of the same content. So it allows you to move things around extremely easily, just cut and paste kind of thing. So I think that the automation of creation of content is going to be very interesting. So let's talk about the automation of creation of content, right? So we're going to be in Can, right? And Can is many things these days, but I think when I first started going there, it was still mostly a creative ad festival. I mean, there was still, there was media there and some tech, but it was still the big night was Saturday when the, you know, the Grand Prix was for film, which right. the rest of us know as TV. And, you know, that has changed quite a bit. And there's been like, you know, consternation in the creative communities, obviously, for a long time. And I think it's we see what's going on with the writer's strike right now, and AI is an issue in there. I don't think it's the main issue. And, you know, putting things in agreement for four or five years in advance, I can see why, you know, on the other side, they, they wouldn't want to do it. But I remember I was talking with, you know, a writer and you know, I mean, he was using some very colorful language. You know, he's a writer, so he knew a lot of different words, but he used some very colorful language when it came to AI getting into the creative process. Right. And I guess what I end up like wondering, because I think everyone goes to replacement instead of like augmentation, but how do you see this augmenting and allowing for more creativity versus inevitably replacing the humans at the heart of true creativity? Or is it time that we sort of admit that a lot of quote-unquote creativity is like just versioning anyway? Well, I think that's true. I mean, like, you know, I have a background in the music industry and, you know, look, there's a model, you know, it's the intro section chorus. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. uh, there are models for building these things. But I mean, you look at like the fake Drake stuff, right? That's really impressive. I mean, it's really impressive. So it looks like there's a whole new layer of legal liability and legal opportunity and various things there. I mean, using Drake's voice and using all the AI components of other music is much like when rap started using segments and pieces of songs and incorporating them. And the music publishing world, the lawyers started getting involved and started licensing out those segments to be used. So I think we're going to see in the music world, a similar process. When you start getting to scripting and automating the creation of script, that's formula stuff to start with, not to be little writers who are brilliant. But when you look at, you know, the animated show Cars, that's mm -hmm. as formulaic as it gets and it works. It's brilliant strategy. Cars 1, in my opinion, is one of the greatest formulas of content out there. I mean, it's, I have kids, so I've seen it a million times, but it's not something that can't be duplicated. 
You know what I mean? Okay, so like Cars 6, what I wonder is like when Cars 6 inevitably gets made, because yeah. that's how these yeah, things yeah. go, like how is it made? And like where, like how much is done by quote, like I'm saying quote unquote humans. I think I can, I think I'm just going to leave out the quotes at this point. How much is it going to be done by humans and how much is going to be done by AI and what is the combination of both? You know what I mean? It's not unreasonable to think that the entire thing could be done through AI. I mean, it's not unreasonable to think that the script could be written and created by generative AI and the content visuals can be created by AI. Automating the creation of an animated show like that is not unreasonable to think that could be coming. Okay. So if so let's spin this into an advertising, right? Because like, you know, I remember when I first started writing about advertising, I was just learning about this industry. I really had no idea about it. And and someone was explaining to me the difference between like working media and non-working media. And there I was like, okay, so wait, working media is when you pay to place the ads, you pay for distribution. And non-working media is the ads itself, I'm like, that's non-working. And I always thought that was a little bit of a tell on the client side of what they really thought about, like, you know, what they were, how they were valuing the creation aspect, leave aside the Saturday night in can. Cause right. it was like, okay, right. you guys get your little lions or whatever. But like the reality is we look at you guys as a cost center and like, you know, overhead, how much of ad creation do you think can be done by AI or will be done? So that's a great question. We're actually doing a lot of attention analysis. We're releasing something. Maybe I shouldn't say it here, but... No, you should. <laughs> we're releasing something called Active Attention, which is a analysis of video attention metrics, being able to analyze the user's engagement with the video. And that includes ads and content. And then analyzing the content itself for where and when people are engaging and not engaging, dropping off, et cetera. So if you take that type of analytic data and you bring it toward content creation, it can provide a huge value towards automating the creation of this content. I mean, if an ad created by an agency is falling off at a certain place consistently and that can be fixed by AI, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I don't know. Oh my God, a client's going to choose it nine times out of 10 and the 10th on Sunday. Like, the, like <laughs> always, right? I mean, like the idea of like waiting, you know, it's like agency life kind of stinks in a lot of ways outside of the like, you know, glamour of can and stuff. There's a lot of like long nights and weekends because clients want it yesterday and they yeah. don't really care about like the personal lives. And you don't have to get the like, you know, Drogo to stay around all weekend. Like you can, you can have an agent or whatever that is like optimizing to a goal and is sucking in all the data and then just like changing versions like itself. You could automate the versioning by far, yeah. Which makes it extremely efficient time-wise. So in other words, if you, in a digital environment, let's use that as an example, you release an ad out there with mid-roll, post-roll, et cetera, and the ad campaign is running and you see right away that there are flaws and reasons where people are falling off every time. And AI can potentially go in, automate, change, edit, and re-release, and push that out based on the actual user behavior. That's an interesting model. I mean, that's gotta be valuable to the brand who's looking to spend the dollars and get the ROI we talked about. Yeah, I guess what I end up wondering is, and maybe this is hopeful on my side, is if there ends up becoming like a human premium in that like, 
we're going to be surrounded by, I guess, what some would call synthetic content, right? I mean, by some estimations, 98% of digital content, there'll probably be more, is going to be synthetically created, which is that it is going to be, you know, created to some degree by AI, by a bot in some degree. And just like, you know, mechanized agriculture, like I, I think the farm to table movement, like, grew up for a reason, right? And I don't think it's going to be like a massive function. And I guess what I end up thinking is like what, whether people will place a human premium on things that they know, like a human made with all its flaws and whatnot. There's some Japanese term for that. But that like it was made by, you know, it was human made. You know how like to put like labels on like clothes, I guess it was back in the 80s, like made in the USA became a thing, like because it was like, you're going to pay more. Like, if you want the stuff that made in the USA, you're going to pay more. And, you know, guess what? Like, you know, in a lot of ways, like, our, you know, clothing manufacturing, supply chains and whatnot aren't as good. I don't know. Do you see, like, a human premium entering media at all? Am I being too hopeful? Well, I think it's a great it's a great with qu- robots. Yeah, yeah it's a great question. That. Like, where's the line between the organic creation of something valuable versus a digital automated creation? Where is that line? And I don't know where it is. I don't think anybody does right now. But I had a conversation the other day with a friend of mine, and we were talking about that the world's going to lead to having like fish concerts and Grateful Dead show fans who are 100% organic and like leaving their phones in the car and experiencing the human reaction to the music and the environment being organic, right? And so how is that leveraged in a world of marketing and advertising? Is it leveraged or does it not matter? It, I don't know. Yeah, it's going to get messy. And I think we're going to, we're just going to figure it out as we go along. I mean, I'm kind of excited for it in some ways because it's such a massive change. It's going to be weird and interesting. No, I think we're I on the precipice bad. of good stuff, though. I mean, I think, look, what were they saying when radio moved to television? You know, what were they saying when, you know, the printing press moved to radio? What were they saying? Who, you know, this is another revolution. And we're simply at a precipice of automating, of animating, of the yeah. creation of something new. So the end result becomes the human engagement, right? Yeah. Are people enjoying what they see? Are they watching? Is there value in it? Because at the end of the day, somebody's got to make a dollar, right? They're going to sell a ticket or sell a subscription or sell an ad, you know? So yeah. are people engaging with it? We're going to see. Yeah. And also, like, I think we always go to the doomsday scenario of, like, yeah. AI taking over and, I don't know, killing us, kill, ending civilizations because they're trying to make a paperclip or something like that. But, you know, the more prosaic thing is I think people go to, you know, replacing jobs, a lot of this stuff. And I think the question ends up being, you know, is the amount of value created you know, worth the value that is destroyed because the reality is, you know, there are winners and losers to any shift. And I think there's more focus on the quote unquote losers or potential losers in this because the potential losers are more middle class or even upper middle class. And those people have voices that are loud. And, well, but and is it destroying or repurposing? You know what I mean? Like, is it just adapting to a new repurpose? Is it finding the new careers that fit with managing within that environment. Yeah. There will be, you know, I mean, automating car manufacturing lost jobs for the assembly line, but it created new jobs for managing the machines. So I I don't know if it's killing it or adapting.
think one of the advantages, if it is, of like, you know, getting older is like you see like cycles and stuff like this and like, you know, nothing stops and things like appear that you would never like, for instance, like I was trying to, I was trying to actually use ChatGPT, it wasn't good for this, to figure out how many personal trainers there are now. They literally, there were no personal trainers like back when I was a kid and like now it's like a massive industry, like, and betting on what people say it is sometimes not a good thing. Cause remember it was like, it seemed like only a few years ago, everyone was telling everyone that you got to like learn to code and stuff like this. Well, my like, code's going first. I mean, yeah, that is very ripe for, you know, it's not going to take over all of that, but like a lot of the like, you know, basic coding is already being, yes. you can yeah, do it with ChatGPT. You absolutely can. And to what extent, I don't know, but I've been hearing that people are doing that. They're telling it what code to write. and It's writing it perfectly. So... Yeah, you know, TBD on that one. I mean, look, because it's also another thing is, I mean, I could go on with this like forever, but like the, it's going to cause us to interrogate all sorts of things that we took for granted that are fairly arbitrary, for instance, like the notion of creativity when a lot of it is really just sort of like pattern matching and like it is mostly just versioning and stuff. And the same way, you know, on a much larger scale, like, you know, we have a very arbitrary definition of like what consciousness is and intelligence that happens to bias us versus other creatures that we claim are inferior, but like they clearly have some forms of consciousness. And once the robots are more intelligent than us, we're going to have to question whether. Yeah, it, it's funny. I saw, I forget where it was, one of these shows that had a, a robot and they asked, how are they different? And the robot said, well, I don't have a soul. You have okay, a soul. so I'm reading this really interesting book. We can cut this out later, Gary, if you want. But I'm reading this really interesting book, God, Human, Animal, Machine. And the woman who wrote it, she had grown up like evangelical religions, and then she moved away from that. And she really has been studying like transhumanism and technology as the new replacement for religion. I mean, religion always was a way for us to explain the world around us. And then we just decided like, oh, this is all very metaphorical and stuff like this. Let's move into like more of a deterministic, let's just really test out the things. And that now re technology has become, you know, the religion that, that we sort of look to. And she had this one line that really struck me where it was, all our existential questions are now engineering problems. <laughs> well, I don't know that I agree with that, but look, I, but I think, one of the things it's like the soul, like when, yeah, when we, I mean, it's like, very arbitrary, we've been trying to figure this out since really millennium. we started thinking. Right. I think that the human components of an organic soul, mind, brain, body is something that will not be capable by AI. However, I have a relative in Sweden who is cloning cells for the purpose of things like fire victims and creating yeah. solutions to get their healthy skin back. So, I mean, the world of bio is pretty sophisticated. So, I mean, I can't say that I know where that's going, but yeah. you, I don't think we're ever going to be able to create a soul. No. I don't think so. Yeah, I could keep going on this thing because we're, we're all, we've always tried to become gods ourselves. And like, I think AI is really going to test that because it is going to, yeah, it's pushing the envelope farther than we've gone. But, you know, I'm a believer that we are a technological species and, you know, we will always push forward. And so the only choice is to adapt to some degree. Agreed. I think that there's a role for the government to play. And I think societies need to have 
a voice and it's not just a small group of people clustered in California oftentimes and you get to decide the fate of humanity. I feel like we should get a vote. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. But I mean, like, okay, so, all of it comes I, back to uh, yeah. in, in the reality of media and content that if somebody's watching and enjoying it, there's a way to monetize it. And the question becomes, is monetizing it going to be enough profit against the way these streaming companies are losing hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars consistently? So that's really the dilemma going on is that where's the profitability in all this? And I think that there's a hybrid that we all think is where the answer lives. Yeah. So what are some, just to wrap it up then on that, like, what are some, what are like three, like sort of key themes that, you know, you're focused on emerging, say from like can and the discussions that you're having and discussions we'll have at the new attention economy, which everyone should come to. Yes, absolutely. So I think the key component becomes what is attention? Because everybody out there is touting their perception of what attention is. But at the end of the day, video and attention is the most critical component because an ad placed in a video has to be placed based on relevance, based on is it targeted to the consumer or relevant to the content contextually or what, and how is that attention analyzed? And I think that's really where the core value of what we're releasing and what we're looking at as the future is being able to really provide the asset a place that gets being seen by the right person at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like in meaningful attention, I think is like Correct. a good We call it active of, attention, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Active, meaningful. We'll go with active because, you know, a lot of media has been trying to quantify attention in some very haphazard and superficial ways, in my view. Like, I mean, the viewability era was kind of ridiculous. Like, yeah, I no, mean, it yeah. was just 100%. Like... <laughs> I mean, look, you turn away from your computer, it's still playing. You know, yeah. are you watching? No. You know, and even the bot world figured out how to falsify that. Well, that's the thing. This is, I mean, we're going to like face this, honestly, with AI. It's like, you know, bots can actually be better at looking like humans than humans. Like you can like, you know, because they're, they're consistent. Yeah. Like humans are inconsistent. But if you want the bot to be consistent, like it'll be consistent. Yeah, though the bots are trained to be inconsistent and look like humans. Yeah. All right. What are a couple other themes you're looking for? So I think one is the attention metric. Two is really this thing about contextual relevance. I mean, we're doing a couple of different things. We're now releasing a contextual relevant banner on a video. So as an example, you're watching a show, there's a Starbucks logo, there should be a contextual or a banner on the bottom that's placed in there that's a Starbucks banner as an ad, right? So that's a way to monetize the contextual relevance. Mm. Also ad slots, I mean, look, All the SSPs are on still 2.4 RTB and not 2.6. And when everybody moves to 2.6 RTB and implements it, the ad potting becomes ad targeting, right? So rather than buying an ad placement based on a show and pods, you can buy an ad by the target. So again, contextual relevance. That Starbucks logo in the scene, the next ad slot should be Starbucks conceptually. So I think we're looking at how the value of video AI and analyzing the content with accuracy and relevance, creating the opportunity for ad placement and ad insertion based on the content itself. Okay, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to being in Cannes with you. We're going to have a good time. Yeah, it's going to be great. And again, we'll 
We'll put a link to the new Attention Economy event that we're having Monday through Wednesday at Cannes. I think that's the 19th through the 21st. We've got about three hours of programming each day. I think we're up to like 25 different speakers. We've got some really amazing people. It's really impressive, the people who put together. I'm really looking forward to these conversations. Yeah, I am too. I have to do a lot of them. So like I might need like, you know, I got to stay hydrated and I got to like stay rested. Well, we have a whole bar and buffet and food and everything there. So you'll no be fine. No bar, no bar. That's why like I got to make it to the end of the week. I got to make sure my voice is intact. I'm going to do a lot of speaking. The real rookie move in can. You know, I've been to Cannes probably like 15 or so times now. Yeah. Big rookie move is you lose your voice by like Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, I'm a veteran. I know I know how this goes. There you go. Oh, awesome, Gary. Thank you so much. I really All appreciate right, it. Right. Great talking to you. We'll see you in Cannes. All right. See you there. All right. Bye. And thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I want to thank Jay Sparks from Pod Help Us, who produces this podcast. If you are interested in a podcast, you should get in touch with Jay. You can find out more at podhelp.us. And send me your feedback. would love to hear what you would like to hear from this podcast. I did one the other week with Sarah Fisher and Peter Kafka that I got a lot of notes about. So I'm thinking about doing more of those. And hopefully we can make that happen. So let me know what you think. 